Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Justine Angfonte. I received death threats for the next six months. One email came from Brazil, and it read, Your mother should have aborted you, and if you ever step foot in my country, I'll shoot you myself. That and more. But before that, you know, we've had stories where Christmas and Hanukkah play a role round about in December, but not one that takes place around Kwanzaa celebrations. So if you have a story like that, pitch it to us. Everything you'd want to know about this or any other holiday story pitches can be found at risk-show.com slash holiday stories. We'll be right back. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. 
All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now here's the show. Hello, folks. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Tommy Guerrero behind me now, and we're calling this week's episode Over the Line. Two extraordinary stories about boundaries crossed. Our first story was recorded at a Risk Live show in New York. It's comedian Tata Sharice's second time on the show. You can find her on Instagram at Tata Sharice. And here she is now with a story we call A Little More Faith in Humanity. It was uh, last year, a very, very cold, super cold winter night, December 2022. I remember this night because it was about 10 degrees. It was all over the news. And it was like the coldest it's been in a while. And it was also Christmas Eve Eve. Okay? So it was quite a memorable night for me. I had a gig, a comedy gig across town. It went well. I killed... It was a great show. Afterwards, I hung out with some comics, you know, which is typical in my line of work, hanging out afterwards, having a few more drinks, talking, networking. I did the whole shabam. So I proceeded to drive home across town. And I got there quickly, but it was later than usual. It was after midnight. So now it's officially Christmas Eve. My neighborhood is a gentrified neighborhood. You know, there's a little bit of everything and there's a mixture. There's college students, there's people who've lived there their whole lives, and there's working professionals. So I do like my neighborhood. However, the parking is terrible. I was driving around for a while looking for parking. It was about six minutes, but when you're cold, that feels like 12. I finally found a spot. It was a nice spot, not too far from the house, just around the corner, less than a two minute walk. I said, I can do this. I parked my car, I sat and I relaxed and I decompressed, which is something that I typically do. However, it was 10 degrees. So I said, okay, it's almost time for me to get out of this car. I was still thinking about how I just killed my show. I'm getting ready to go in the house. I'm relaxing a bit. You know how you sit in your car just for a moment longer. I looked up to my right. I saw a lovely white couple walking their dog. It was a bit strange because it was so cold, everything was frozen. So the dog looked at me, I looked at the dog. Because the dog was wondering why he was being walked as well in this weather. I looked to my left 
and I saw two young men walking in my direction across the street. I didn't want to be that person, but I'm going to keep it real. I said to myself, they up to no good. <laughs> I didn't want to be that person, especially in my own community. But I felt it. They did have on masks. They did. But since COVID, it's more common to see masks. One had on a bandana half of his face. The other one had on a full ski mask. I'm like, you know what? It's 10 degrees. <laughs> I don't want to assume. But I feel like they're up to no good. Lord behold, 10 seconds later, I hear taps on my windows. A tap on this side, a tap on this side. Two guns pointing my way with the fingers on the trigger. Pistols. I'm gonna keep it real, my heart went to my ass. But I stayed calm, my body stayed calm. This is my first time getting carjacked or robbed at gunpoint. So I wanted to relax. And the first thing I thought, okay, I have a blanket in the car because my heat didn't work. That's on my lap. I grabbed my purse, the blanket, and my iPhone charger. <laughs> They're already getting the car and a full tank of gas. Not my iPhone charger. <laughs> I didn't want to get shot, but I also didn't want to buy a new charger. <laughs> now I have two phones, a personal phone and a work phone. One of the phones was sadly left behind. I was only able to grab the personal phone. So I'm getting out the car quickly. I was pissed, because I was bigger than both men. <laughs> but these guns are in my face, so I just give them what they want, because I didn't want to lose my life. You know, and it's freezing outside. I hurried up the street as quickly as I could and ran to my apartment building and banged on the door because I didn't have my keys. These guys took off in my car and they had my keys and my work phone. I'm banging on the door for my roommate to come let me in. Her boyfriend, they come running outside. They're like, what's going on? I said, I was just carjacked. And I'm just kind of in a panic mode, not screaming or yelling. I was actually quiet throughout this whole ordeal because I just feel like you can't think when you're panicking too much. I tried to call the police. Well, I did call the police. They got there quickly. I was happy about that. They were asking me if I had my password information for Find My iPhone so I can maybe locate the other phone. I watch a lot of Law & Order SVU, so I said, this is a great plan. <laughs> Let's track it down. However, I was so frantic and so confused and just so overwhelmed that I couldn't even think of my passwords correctly for that phone. I go to the police station and I was there for hours, hours and hours, just with my thoughts. One, I was really disappointed in my community. I was really angry at black men. I was so angry because they could have robbed a white couple walking their dog. <laughs> but they chose me. I was very angry. I didn't know what I was gonna do. I, my car is my livelihood. It's how I get to shows, it's how I get around. It's how I make a living. So I was just like, wow, <sighs> this is a mess. I'm sitting there waiting at the station. No one's really paying me much attention. They're asking me the same questions over and over again. And I'm, you know, complying and giving my statements. I finally get a ride home. It's about three, four in the morning at this point. 
The officer was cute, so I did flirt. <laughs> I only flirted because if I don't have a car, maybe I'll have a ride in the future. <laughs> when I got home, I remember just, I like to make light of situations that I'm in. It's just a part of my character. So when I got home, I was just exhausted, you know, even though hours have gone past and I already thought about everything possible, where the car could be, what am I going to do next? When I got home, I just wanted to rest. Finally wanted to rest. But still in my mind, heavy disappointment in black men. Because I was like, wow, I did not want to be that lady to assume these two guys walking towards me are about to rob me. I didn't want to be that lady. But my spirit was right. That kept replaying in my head over and over and over. I finally got some rest. I woke up a few hours later to a text to my personal phone saying, hey, I found this iPhone. It says to reach out to this number if someone happens to come across it. A little joy got in my heart. I said, oh wow, I may get my work phone back. Because you can do find my iPhone and you can send your phone a message then if there's a good Samaritan, you might get back to you. So I was like, okay, great. Me and this guy are texting. I don't know if they're male or female at this point, but we're texting and planning to meet up. They're not too far from me. We set a time, which was about an hour later, and we did the swap. However, I'm walking. I don't know who I'm looking for, what they look like. If this was somebody who was a part of the robbery, I wasn't sure, but it was broad daylight, and I felt brave. I'm walking to meet them. I'm noticing people crossing off the street, so I'm like, it's not that person, it's not that person. And I'm walking further up the street, and there's another gentleman. He looks like he's looking like me, looking for someone that he doesn't know. He's looking, I'm looking, and then he waves my phone like this. I'm like, oh, it's you, okay. He hands me the phone, and he is a young black man. I felt a little instant relief, a little restorement in humanity at that point. You know, we began to walk and talk. He told me he works for the courthouse. He has a great job downtown. He saw this phone and he said, it's Christmas. I know somebody doesn't want to be without their phone for Christmas. And I just remember getting teary-eyed because I was just like, wow, I was just like really angry at black men. And this black man just, you know, he looked young too, just like those guys that robbed me. And we talked a little bit more. He went his way, I went my way. Now I do have my phone. And I just have a little bit more faith, like I said, in humanity at this point. So I'm just wondering, why can't white people do that sometimes? It taught me, even though I was angry at my community and the men who robbed me, I also was quickly reminded not to judge a book by its cover. Now, don't get me wrong, I still am a bit more cautious. I'm in the car only 30 seconds now once I park. And I do get a little jumpy when somebody walks past me. I do still cross the street like a white woman when I see certain things. However, I keep in mind that, hey, this person is not going to do anything. They may not do anything. And treat people as individuals not as a whole, for one person's mistake. I didn't let that trauma change my heart. And that's my story.
Thank you so much. <laughs> I can't think of a thing that hasn't been shot through with pain Like a nightingale sung in the dead of the night Goodbye so long, farewell all I'll be This is Risk. This is the amazing Allison Russell behind me now. And we just heard from Tata Sharice, who you can find at tatasharice.com. Folks, we have one last live show of 2023, and it's at the Lyric Hyperion in Los Angeles on Tuesday, December 19th at 7.30. People are loving this new venue. And despite how brutal this year has been for us financially, our live shows have been as strong as ever. And it's been so moving to be there in the rooms where the stories were shared so intimately. Nothing compares to being there. Remember, you can always find tickets to our live shows at risk-show.com slash live. We'll be right back. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. We're back. Now, our second story on today's episode is truly extraordinary. Justine Ang Fonte is an extraordinary person. She is a co-creator 
of Raised Pinay, an original production of Filipina American Storytelling, and look for her Your Friendly Ghostwriter Instagram account at underscore good dot buys underscore, where she composes the texts you've been avoiding sending about setting your boundaries with lovers, friends, family, or exes. <laughs> and speaking of boundaries, you are about to hear Justine's beautifully told story about some hard-won wisdom she gained in her youth. And I feel it'll be helpful to a lot of people to hear. So without further ado, here is Justine Ang Fonte with a story we call but nothing happened. I'm a summer dream, I'm a real life dream, I'm worthy of all the goodness and the love that the world's gonna give to me. I'ma give it that ten times, people, are you ready? If you think you're alone, hold on. Don't you know, don't you know, don't you know you are never alone? I already knew how to be a Catholic well before I even went to Catholic school. And that's because being a Filipino and a child of Filipino immigrants, it's synonymous, being Catholic, being Filipino. So listening to my body was not something I was trained to do. For example, if I was hungry, that didn't matter because it was Friday, so I need to fast. If I was craving meat, that didn't matter because it was Lent and you needed to abstain from eating meat. If my knees were in pain from kneeling, for a long time during mass, that also didn't matter because this was just sacrifice. I remember my principal in my grade school, Sister Maria say, Jesus died for our sins, Justine. This is the least you can do. So I learned that this is just something I stomach. I learned that God was always watching me, always. And if something bad happened in my life, it's because he was testing me. If something good happened, then it was because he's blessing me. So I didn't have any control. Instead, I was controlled. I also learned that when it came down to whatever happened in my life, it was always in God's hands, not my own. I didn't have bodily autonomy. When it came to sex, well, we didn't talk about it and we weren't supposed to. When it came to virginity specifically, I needed to be pure, whole, and that's what made me good. In fact, the only time I recall them ever bringing the topic up was when my 16-year-old cousin got his girlfriend pregnant in high school. My family was driving down the 101 in our blue Honda Accord, my parents in the front seat gossiping about the big family drama while my brother and I were just in the back probably listening to our Walkmans because it was the 90s. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, my mom turns around from the passenger seats, points at my brother and I as if we were already guilty of something. 
and says, that will never happen to you, okay? My brother and I just look at each other with these what the fuck eyes. But in unison, as good children do, we said like obedient midshipmen, yes, ma. And that was it. That was the only time I remember my parents talking to me about sex. Because being a good girl meant being God-fearing. And if I ever sinned, there's only one type of person I confess those sins to, a man. Because a man was better, was more powerful than a woman. I didn't have control. Part of my childhood, including being a competitive gymnast, my parents put me in gymnastics at the age of two. So it was a significant part of my childhood. And what I learned from this sport was that sprained knees or sprained necks, that just really meant qualifying for state championships. I remember what was really trendy during that time were these no fear brand t-shirts. You remember those? Yeah. So a teammate of mine actually gifted me with one of these shirts for one of my birthdays and I wore it to practice the next day, and I felt proud because it said, pain is weakness leaving the body. I wore that shirt and one of my teammates looked over and said, oh, tight. I needed to prove my worth, my goodness with medals. And that meant I couldn't listen to what my body was telling me. Otherwise, I would never make it to the Sydney 2000 Olympics. And that's what I wanted. When I was eight years old, I qualified for my first state championship. It was the Level 5 California State Championship. And the third of four events was the floor routine. I sprained my neck and I was in this excruciating amount of pain, but was determined to finish the competition. I just kept thinking, I only have vaults left. That's like what? 12 seconds, I do that twice, that's 24 seconds. I can endure 24 seconds of pain. Pain is weakness leaving the body. Pain is weakness leaving the body. My coach, out of I think a formality, just asked, what do you wanna do? But I knew what she wanted me to do and it was to finish that fourth and final event. So even if it was painful for me, I learned that I train with pain. So I'm absolutely gonna compete with pain. Being a good gymnast was like being a good Catholic. Pain and discomfort was really just sacrifice for salvation. Now, despite my rise in gymnastics, I ended up quitting because as I was told, I lacked mental toughness. I agree, I was fucking 12 years old. But regardless, I said, I need to find a new sport and fast because I need to be an elite athlete by the age of 16. Who else is gonna recruit me or give me a college scholarship if I don't get good at something fast? So I tried my hand at basketball, did track, I swam, and then I landed on tennis. Mainly because when I was seven years old, my mom had a conference in Pasadena, California, and we were staying at the Ritz-Carlton, which had a tennis court. She put me up for a tennis lesson, and I wasn't so bad. Gymnastics gave me such a strong foundation to be this all-around athlete, but it was the one that was better than basketball, track, and swimming. So I figured with my height, I would probably be most successful pursuing that sport. In finding out where I was gonna do this, one of my neighbors 
had sent their kid to an academy just a couple cities from where we lived. And the coach there that ran it was known as the Tennis Nazi. We had training every single day, five days a week for three hours each day, and then on weekends, double days. His players always were the top seeds in tournaments. They got into the top NCAA colleges, so I figured this guy is doing something right. I was 14 years old when I started training with him, and I was stayed for four years. He was this 37-year-old Catholic, husky, bald, white man. We're gonna call him Aaron. Aaron drove this jet black Denali on the weekdays and a fire red Mustang on the weekends. And every single one of his players paid under the table cash. If I were to do a private lesson with him, it was one day a week and it was $85 an hour. Now, let me remind you, I am a child of Philippine immigrants. So when it comes to toilet paper squares, we conserve and count them. So when I'm in a private lesson that's costing $85 an hour, you better believe I'm calculating what is that each minute, and it's $1.40. So after the first drill, I picked up those 100 balls so fast to not waste any time or money. The thing about Aaron is that he ended those hour privates on the dot, the 60th minute. He was an intense guy. He really cared about form in the strokes. He hit the ball hard, but he wasn't so much of a grandmaster. He didn't care much about strategy. He had this grunt when he would hit the ball, but it wasn't like a Monica Seles grunt. It was more like, ay, ay, ay. I worked with him in that first year and already I started to move up the USTA ranks. There was a period in my time with him that I was breaking strings every single week and I was burning through a pair of Nikes each month. It's an expensive sport. And my parents reminded me of that every single time they could, particularly after I lost a match. We drive three hours to a tournament in Sacramento. And if I lost, I remember how dreadful those car rides home were. My mom would say to me, we drove all this way and you lose first round. My dad would interject because he wants to get his two cents in out of his own rage. All those lessons we paid for and you double fault on game points. I hated those lectures and I hated those car rides. Those guilt trips, they were heavy and they weighed on me because then I wasn't reaching salvation or goodness. So when I got sponsored, by Dunlop when I turned 17 in my time with him, I felt like getting free rackets and bags became a way I could pay back my parents. Look, Ma Pa, free shit! I also noticed that in just my first year working with him, when I was only 15, our private lessons got a little bit longer at no extra cost. Two minutes he'd go over, five minutes he'd go over, no more on the dot would he end it. My teammates took notice of that and they got jealous, wondering why he was playing favorites. And they would say things like, oh my God, you're so lucky. 
He spent an hour and five minutes with you? He doesn't even do that for me. And I kept thinking, why does he do that for me? I remember him saying to me once, Justine, you have the most potential and you're coachable. So I figured that's why I got the favorite. Now, nonetheless, there was a lull in my tennis ranking at some point there. And I just wanted to try a different coach from the academy. I figured it would be no problem. Other students had left him for a different private. And my mom told me, why not? He doesn't own you. So I told Aaron, hey, I'm gonna try out a different coach. And he was pissed. I got you to the top 50. Why would you leave me? I told him, I'm not leaving clinic. It's just for a private. But I felt so scolded, like those lectures in those car rides home from tournaments. And I was confused because Irina had been working with him, left, and he didn't give her shit for it. I was still gonna be at clinic and group practice every single day of the week. I was just gonna switch privates, which were one time a week. I recalled Keiko, one of the other players that worked with him and then did leave. And he referenced her, fine, do whatever you want. You think Keiko got better after she left me? After all I've done for you. Now you see, when I started training with the other coaches, they were kind, encouraging, and they certainly weren't stingy with the 60 minutes. I even laughed during the lesson. So during this time I was with another coach, I noticed that the rest of the players at the academy could always determine what mood Aaron was in that day before group started. If it was a good mood, we'd know because we'd walk onto the courts and he would be feeding balls for his private lesson that was carrying over and he'd be singing some top 40 song. I need a girl to ride, ride, ride. I need a girl to make my wife. Those were the only lines to the P. Diddy song that he knew. But we knew, cool, Aaron's in a good mood. If he was in a bad mood, I knew because he'd make us run suicide liners for no reason until we threw up. When I was doing my private lesson on the courts, I could feel through my peripheral view, his eyes on me, watching as I was training with somebody else. And I started to feel so guilty because those eyes weighed on me and that guilt started to creep in. I couldn't take it anymore, so I decided I'm gonna leave the academy for private lessons and find somebody for privates outside of here, but I'll stay at group because all my friends are here. But the thing is, a lot of the coaches in that area actually got their start because of Aaron. They started at that academy and they decided to leave, take players from the academy and do their own thing. So. I started to feel sorry for him because of how often he was betrayed by his own coworkers. At clinic, he caught me and said, so how was Dimitri's? I felt scolded again, his eyes just on me. What, you don't know that I know you're cheating on me? I have eyes all over. It was just one lesson, Aaron. It's over, it's over. I'm not gonna go back. And that's exactly what I did. I went back to Aaron. I went back to his private lessons. At this point in time, he was charging 250 an hour, but he made sure to remind me, you know what? I'm gonna let you go. 
They're grandfathered in. You can still pay only 85 an hour. By the end of my second year training with him, I was also back to winning. At practice, he would hand me an ice cold blue Gatorade, but none of the other players. I was now in the top 30 in juniors. And on the weekends, in between those double days, he would go and pick up lunch for all the other coaches. But he would come back and hand me a chicken quesadilla. At home, sometimes there were phone calls. The landline at my home would ring. And I would hear my mom say from downstairs, Tin, it's Aaron. I'd walk over from my room where I was doing homework to my parents' bedroom, pick up the phone. I'd hear the kitchen stove and vent on. So I said, Mom, I got it. As soon as I heard it click, we started to talk. We'd talk about my unforced errors. We'd talk about how I was preparing for the tournament. And then he would say to me, God, my girlfriend is so annoying. I give her everything, but all she wants is marriage. He was dating this Chinese woman. And I felt it was weird that he was telling me this, but I'm mature. I could be his sounding board. And then he would say things like, I really don't like your boyfriend and that punk rock music he makes you listen to. I'm like, why? What's wrong? That music isn't conducive to an athlete's mental clarity. So I'd hang up the phone after these calls. And as soon as the red light disappeared from the phone console, my mom would say to me, why does he call you so late? What does he need to say to you now that he couldn't have said to you when you were just at practice or save for tomorrow? I turned 16 and I made it to the top 10. And with those rankings, I made it to the quarterfinals of a big tournament. In return, he gifted me a Tiffany necklace. It was that trendy one in the 2000s, the one that looked like a dog chain collar with a heart tag on it. Now, I felt like this is a big gift, but I made the fucking quarters. I feel like that merited a substantial reward. And then on those evening calls, he'd ask me, Did you wear the necklace? Did anyone ask you where it came from? Oh, um, I just told him a friend got it for me. And he would stay quiet. I had a private lesson with him one day, and my dad came early to help pick up balls. On the last drill, all the balls were finally picked up. I had my racket bag draped across my shoulder. We started to walk out to the gate. Aaron slapped my butt. Hey, good job today. You'll do well this weekend. And then he turned to my dad and said, she works really hard. You should be proud. We walked back to our car in the parking lot, opened up the door of that blue Honda Accord, and my dad just stared down at the steering wheel. Wondering what was taking him so long to start the ignition, he said to me, does he do that all the time? Slap your butt like that? What, what do you mean? What do you mean, Pop? I don't like that he does that. Oh, okay. And then my dad just drove the 15 minutes home in silence. I turned 17 and I beat a top five player. My match was at a satellite court, not the main tournament site. 
So he offered to drive me in his red Mustang to the main site. We pulled up to the parking lot and I tried to get my things together and open the door. And he said, wait, and then handed me this small brown box with embossed stripes. At the top of the box was inscribed, Louis Vuitton, Paris. I felt this pit in my stomach. I started to open the box slowly, as if there was a jack-in-the-box about to pop out. I delicately parted the tan tissue paper inside, and it was a monogram Elise wallet, the one with the two coin pockets on each side, but you can open it up still and put your bills and your credit cards in. The only thing I could say was, how much did this cost? And he said, don't worry about it. Now, I've never owned a luxury good before, besides the fake bags I got in the Philippines. And unlike the Tiffany necklace, I liked the wallet. It was practical, compact, mature, and it was certainly better than my overstuffed Roxy Velcro wallet. On one evening, I was annotating my APUS history homework, and now my blue Nokia cell phone ringer goes off. I pick it up, and Aaron says to me, I'm all fucked up because of a dream I had last night. And I go, whoa, what happened? You were marrying some loser. And I was trying to think, I wonder if it's my boyfriend. And I said, oh, who was it? It doesn't matter. The point is, it wasn't the right guy. I felt frozen. And all I could say was, Aaron, you're married. I'll see you at practice. When I hung up that phone, that's when I knew I could never tell people about him or that wallet. I graduated from high school and I went on to captain my tennis team in college. But in the summer, I would visit my friends back at Aaron's Academy who were still there and were younger. Aaron wouldn't talk to me on those visits. But he was on my family's Christmas mailing list, so he got a card every December. One of those Decembers, he calls. Is this all I get now? A card? Like everyone else? I don't know what you want me to say, Aaron. And that's it. Nothing else happened. The influence of coaches is underrated. Most of the adults in my life as a child were coaches. Soccer coaches, basketball, PE, track, swimming, and of course, tennis. And I could attest to the fact that coaches have a way of motivating and changing behavior in you in the way parents cannot. And most of my coaches were healthy and caring people in my life, except for two. I aged out for Aaron, but when I turned 18 and started playing on my college women's tennis team, there was Bo. 
Bo was one of the coaches at my university. Like Aaron, he was also in his mid-30s when I met him. He was white, he dated Asian women, and he ended up marrying an Asian woman. Bo really understood my game, and he knew how to reach me when it came to strategy. He taught me to become mentally tough. My Navy brother was stationed nearby where I went to college, and so on home games, he would often come to the matches and be alongside the sidelines with Bo. He knew him. They were friends. My parents knew him because they would sometimes drive down and also watch the matches and got to know him. Bo was on the family Christmas mailing list. Bo was healthy and caring like so many of my coaches, except for one private lesson I had with him. It was another sunny California day and I was wearing my usual tennis practice outfit, sports bra and biker shorts. And as I put my bag down, getting ready for our private lesson, he looked at me and smiled and said, if only you were my age when I was in college. I felt that familiar rock drop into my stomach, like just one year earlier when Aaron told me about his dream. Finish that sentence, Bo. Finish that. He just smiled and nodded his head. And then we started the lesson. So Bo tried to hit on me. I was a freshman in college. That's what happens in college. We won conference every single year I played on that team. And my senior year when I was captain, NCAA regionals were held in Hawaii. The night before that match, I had this vivid dream about Bo being kidnapped by a terrorist group. I woke up that morning terrified, in sweats. I wake up my teammate who was sharing the room with me, Grace. I told her everything that happened and her response was, oh my God, we have to go check on him right now. This is bad luck. Like young people do, we thought nightmares were real. So we ran down that hotel lobby we started banging on his door, Bo, Bo, are you in there? He opens the door, laughing. What's going on? I had, I had a dream about you and you got, you got kidnapped by terrorists, are you okay? He's like, yeah, I'm fine, I just went for a run. Go get ready girls, today's a big day. We ended up losing that match. And that was the last match of the season. It was also the last match of my tennis career. But I ended loving the sport because of my teammates, playing for them and our camaraderie and the loyalty to each other as opposed to out of guilt or fear like I did in high school. We were gonna end the visit in Hawaii with a team dinner that evening but before it, I got a text from Bo. Hey, meet me in the lobby for a sec. I had already gotten ready for the dinner, but Grace was still in the shower, so I headed down to the lobby. There was a circle of black leather ottomans, and Bo was seated there in a golf shirt and jeans amidst birds of paradise and hibiscus flowers. I got you a graduation present. 
which was weird because even though the season was done, graduation still wasn't for a few more months. So he went on to tell me about being downtown with his Asian girlfriend, Teresa. Teresa and I came across a palm reader when we were walking downtown for dinner the other night. And, you know, I'm not into that stuff, but she told me to be open-minded. I could attest to that. I would never think Bo is a palm reader kind of guy, but I did love Teresa. She was Filipina and I was a fan. So let's hear how this story goes. The palm reader kept telling me after reviewing my palms, someone named Jay was going to save my life. And I'm thinking, I don't know a Jay. J-A-Y. Teresa doesn't know a Jay. Teresa isn't Jay. So we have no idea what this palm reader is talking about. But when you stormed my door this morning with grace and told me what happened in your dream, I remembered what the palm reader said. Justine, you're Jay. I don't know what the palm reader meant and what it means by you saving my life, but you're Jay. And then he handed me a black velvet box. I opened it and he said, I thought of you when I saw this at the jewelry store after the match. It was a set of iridescent purple pearl earrings and a necklace. I'm really proud of you. Look how much you've grown. I'm really proud to be your coach. Happy graduation. Uh, thanks, Bo. I should go see if Grace is ready. I'll see you at the dinner. And then I left the lobby. Bo went on to marry an Asian player from an opposing team who was four years younger than me. They have kids. Now, all of that was 15 years ago. Today, I'm a sexuality educator, and I work in K-12 schools. I became a sex educator because of Catholicism. Confess to a man when you've sinned. Experience and endure pain for sacrifice so that you can reach salvation. Don't talk about sex or anything that has to do with it. All of those messages were so contrary to empowering young people with knowledge about how their bodies work, how to listen to them so that they can take care of them. Catholic school taught me to be vulnerable and to be silent. If I can empower children to know what their boundaries are, assert their boundaries, and honor other people's boundaries, what a different world this would be. And then in 2021, I got slandered by the New York Post in several articles that ended up getting picked up by right-wing press around the world. Fox News, Breitbart, Ben Shapiro were all talking about me. Pervert, sex ed indoctrinator out at NYC private school. Why not in jail? Read one headline. Candace Owens tweeted about me saying she should be registered as a sex offender. Another headline said, Groomer resigns from elite school after sex ed lesson. I received death threats for the next six months in all my inboxes, voicemails, and DMs. One email came from Brazil, and it read, Your mother should have aborted you 
And if you ever step foot in my country, I'll shoot you myself. Paolo. I was harassed on the street by people in my own neighborhood because of blogs that had written about me. All because a couple parents complained about my first grade lesson titled Private Parts Are Private. That's not political. That's factual. And it's life-saving. But the public shaming was relentless and ruthless. My therapist earned every dollar getting me to healing that year. And those attacks and accusations just kept saying that word groomer, groomer, over and over again, saying that I was sexualizing kids and convincing them to masturbate. Now, that's not what I was doing. And that's also not what grooming is. Grooming is the action of attempting to form a relationship with a child or young person with the intention of getting them to agree to sexual activity with an adult. So when sex education is taught, especially in elementary school, it's child abuse prevention. When you can speak to these young people, the most vulnerable, you're teaching them signs of abuse like intensity of emotions, possessiveness of your time, of your energy, of your body, manipulation, making you feel guilty all the time, isolating you from the rest of your people, volatility in how they react, exorbitant gifts. You're different. You're special. You cheated on me. Everything I've done for you and you do this, I don't like your boyfriend. I dreamed about you. I had another fight about my girlfriend. Did you wear what I gave you? If only you were my age when I was in college. The palm reader told me about you. Everything just started to flood back from high school and college. I told my therapist about Aaron during all of this smear campaign. And because it was on FaceTime, I was seated on my bed with throw pillows around me, with one of those throw pillows propping up my laptop, and I just told her everything. Justine, this is a very significant event in your life. Yeah, but nothing happened, he never touched me. He slapped your butt. Well, a lot of coaches do that. That's no big deal. In front of your dad, who said nothing to him. Well, my dad gets intimidated by white people, so he didn't want to rock the boat. Your mom knew something was wrong and didn't confront him. Well, she'd always get mad when friends would call late at night when I was supposed to be doing homework. He's not your friend. He's a coach and an adult man. But nothing happened. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. I cried and cried. And it was the first release I had had about this event. Just because nothing sexual happened, you cannot dismiss his behavior. 
Now, it's not your fault, but it is the adults. An adult man groomed you, and two adult witnesses didn't protect you. You were a child. My best friend moved to New York City soon after this therapy session, and she knew Aaron, trained with him. Jen, remember that LV wallet I always had? Yeah, the one you wouldn't tell me where it came from. I'm ready to tell you now. She's been waiting for the answer to this since the 12th grade. I told her everything. We cried, we held each other. And I started to feel bad that she felt bad. And I wanted to comfort her. I'm okay though, I'm fine. Nothing happened. What do you mean nothing happened? He took advantage of you. I know, but I'm okay. I'm fine, it was a long time ago. She was livid. You know, he's still coaching there. He has a daughter now, he has a son too. He's a fucking father and predator. But it's fine, I didn't let him do anything. I was really strong, you know that. I could hold my own. That doesn't matter. Imagine if one of your students came to you and told you everything you just told me that was happening to her about a coach. What would you do, gauge how strong and mature she is? No, of course not, I'm a mandated reporter. I would give her tools to assert herself and I would talk to her parents and the school counselor. Exactly, you'd triage that shit. Stop gaslighting yourself. After that conversation, I kept thinking, did I ask for Aaron's attention? Did I do something wrong? Or am I just an Asian woman who's fetishized by white men in their world? Aaron and Bo kept their distance from me since having kids. And hopefully it's because they are working really hard to be good men and fathers to their children. And I've tried to process this, but it took 20 years. And thanks to the Risk Show, I'm given a platform to use my voice to share this story. Because even though I was a victim, I was a caretaker to protect Aaron and Bo with my silence and protecting my parents from Aaron and Bo. My survival response as a child was silence. They weren't all bad. They made me an elite athlete. I had so many friends there where they worked. I got scholarship offers. It wasn't all bad and nothing happened, right? Nothing happened. My therapist opened the door, but it was Jen who lit the fire. Aaron and Bo didn't do anything 
actionable by a court of law. They were just inappropriate. And that seems like a generous term. But maybe this is the kind of pain that is just weakness leaving the body. Emotional pain that if buried will lead you to championships and will just resolve itself. I wish Aaron was an isolated event, but that's not how power works. You see, white supremacy, it's sneaky and it's pervasive. It's not white hoods and burning crosses all the time. None of the other girls that Aaron was coaching privately were Asian when I was there. But I didn't realize that until later. But I'm not the Asian woman he stereotyped me to be. I'm not subservient, obedient. I'm not an object and I did not inherit my parents' silence. So even if I don't have the courage to confront him directly, I hope this message gets to Aaron. Aaron, you have an Asian daughter. She plays tennis too. So if there is the slightest distrust that you have in any man treating her the same way you treated me, then you owe three apologies. One is to my dad, one is to my mom, and the third is to me. Now I can't speak for my parents, but I will speak for myself now. Be transparent with your daughter. Tell her my story and apologize to her for controlling any girl or women you have ever controlled in your life because there's no way I was an isolated moment for you. I want you to explain to her how it was unethical each time you did that, how it was harmful to every single person and how dehumanizing it is. Reassure her that you will never do that again and how you are going to hold yourself accountable to that. And then I want you to face your son. Tell him my story and describe to him the kind of man that makes you. Teach him that no one of any gender is to be controlled, manipulated, or guilted because he might just have a fragile ego. Tell him how you are healing from your selfishness and how you're controlling yourself instead of controlling others. You know what, I lied. There's a fourth apology. It's to your wife. Admit to her that you fetishize Asian women. Ask her what your penance is and then honor it. I do this work as a sex educator because if my parents had a me back then, maybe they wouldn't have been so vulnerable to white adjacency and obedience. And then I'd have a different story to tell today. 
but today it is different. Now, the ball is in my court. is almost all for this week's episode folks this is biba doobie behind me now a filipina musician from london and we just heard from justine angfonte listen i highly recommend you visit justine's site at justinefonte.com it's also listed in the show notes because she does so much extraordinary work around health education, and it's just so inspiring to see. Also, over on Patreon this week, you'll find an extraordinary follow-up conversation that we recorded where Justine and her friend, psychologist Dr. Ali Matu, discuss the story you just heard. Now, it's a fascinating conversation, and they really dig into it, but this part had me laughing out loud. I remember one time we were like late for Sunday mass or something. So my parents were yelling like, come on, let's go. We got to go. And my brother's like, I'm not going. I'm like already in the car waiting to go. My brother comes down and my parents start lecturing. He's like, why aren't you going? We have to go. It's Sunday and we have to go every Sunday. And my brother straight up says, MacGyver's my God. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, that is the most, like, 80s thing I've I've. <laughs> that and so much more is at patreon.com slash risk. And unfortunately, our Patreon donations have taken a big dip again. But how irreplaceable is this podcast? This is the place where stories like Justine's and Tata's in today's episode can be told so frankly and so freely. If you've always thought, ah, you know, there's enough people out there who will support Risk and keep it running. No! 
We really do need everyone's support. We're still between a rock and a hard place. We're still stuck with these big pay cuts that every one of us on the staff had to take earlier this year. And listen, every little bit does count. It really is true that if everyone who listens was giving just a little, we wouldn't be so worried about continuing to exist. So please, if you can, become a member at patreon.com slash risk for all the incredible bonus content over there. Or if you'd rather make a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. And if neither of those options work, but you want to donate in some way, just email me about it at kevin at risk-show.com. Folks, I cannot express how grateful we are for everyone who is pitching in to help us keep making this show. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Howdy, Risk fans. This is friend of the show, Adam Griffin. I'm not only somebody who tells stories about masturbating gorillas, I'm also a life coach with Atomic Griffin Coaching. Coaching gives clients the opportunity to think what they've not thought, say what they've not said, dream what they've not dreamed, and create what they've not created. Dave Ellis. If you'd like to make a meaningful change in your life, whether that means breaking a bad habit like smoking, something I gave up and Jesus fucking Christ was that hard, or making a great habit like exercising regularly, I've run not one but two marathons, not in the same year. Or a third thing, like managing your time better or taking some of the power out of that inner critic that says things like, what the fuck are you doing, you stupid idiot? <clears throat> Working with a life coach like me can help. To learn more about what it would be like for us to work together, set up a free discovery session with me. Just go to atomic-griffin.com. That's A-T-O-M-I-C hyphen G-R-Y-P-H-O-N.com to book that free session. Attention risk fans! Use code RISK, that's R-I-S-K, when you book your free discovery session and get 10% off your first coaching package. Atomic Griffin Coaching. Let's unlock your limitless potential. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We're back. Folks, on Thursday's episode, you'll get to hear a story told by none other than Risk's business director, J.C. Cassis. You've heard J.C. making announcements and whatnot on the show before, but this story is a heartfelt look back at a very vulnerable moment for her. That kind of episode happened again and again and again throughout the rest of that semester where it seemed like he would start liking a girl start going out with her for some reason it wouldn't work out and there'd be a blissful few weeks where i would go back to thinking like maybe it's possible like it didn't work out with that bitch it's gonna be me it's <laughs> <not>. <laughs> yeah, but that's thursday and folks today's the day take a risk 